Welcome to the Gottesdienst crowd, where we foster confessional integrity, liturgical preservation, and preaching that doesn't stink. We believe that the historic liturgy of the divine service is more than mere cobwebs of antiquity, but it is a true treasure of the Church to be dusted off and brought down from her attic to be enjoyed. So let's get dusting. Welcome back to the Godestine's Crowd. This is Jason Broughton. Uh, today we have with us uh, a first-time guest, Andrew Richard. He is the pastor, uh, one of the pastors at Mount Hope Lutheran Church and School in Casper, Wyoming. Uh, welcome, Andrew. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's uh, my pleasure. So one of our mutual friends, um, Josh Shear, gave me uh, a tip that uh, I should chat with you about this devotional book that you wrote, or uh, its second edition coming out, called Christ and the Church. It's a devotional on marriage. And, uh, you know, having read through it, it looks um, it looks like it would be really helpful not only for the average layperson in the pew, but I think even for beefing up um, what most pastors have for catechesis in in their premarital sessions, so to speak. So uh, thanks for writing this. What was the occasion for writing it? What why did why did you sit down and put pen to paper? Is it is it was there something going on in what you saw in the landscape of marriage in general? Or had you always just wanted to sit down and write a devotional on marriage? It wasn't necessarily something I'd always wanted to do. Uh, there were a couple of things that went into it. Uh, I wrote the first edition several years ago when I was pastor of a mission congregation in Iowa District East, uh, St. Silas Lutheran Church. And my wife and I had been going through some various marriage books, uh, just attempting to use them devotionally. And one of the things we noticed is that many of them aren't particularly devotional. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff in a lot of books on marriage. Uh, but as far as getting you into to scripture and ending with prayer, uh, there was just a, a lack there. And at the same time at the congregation, there was a desire for some marriage classes, uh, hitting the, the highlights of what makes for a good marriage, diving into the scriptures and, and wanting to do it biblically and really mm. get into the scriptures and see well, what God has to say about marriage. So as I was prepping for that class and reflecting on the books that I had been reading, I purposefully structured this one to be able to be used devotionally, now that scripture passages are coming up, that there are uh, lengthy prayers at the end, and uh, seeking to make it reusable too, something that you wouldn't just use once, but maybe even annually on your anniversary, start going through mm -hmm. it and spend that month uh, going through and, and refreshing on some of the key things with marriage. So that was the the impetus behind the whole thing, and I wrote the chapters as the sessions of the class came about. Yeah, and so why why devotionally something just on marriage, um, as opposed to just something class? What is there something unique that um, that a couple needs in particular uh, in in praying together and learning together in kind of a devotional setting like that? on the biblical godly teaching about about what a husband is and what a wife is that is uh, i guess really lends itself to to having devotional material as opposed to just a class or a book yeah one of the main reasons i wanted to do something devotional is because of the time that i was already setting aside with my wife to have devotions together setting mm -hmm. aside additional time to go through this uh, didactic marriage book together. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. I, I preferred to just capitalize on the time that we already were setting aside for being in God's word and praying. And this dovetailed into that existing time. And part of my hope was that it could do the same for other couples who have already set aside time for having devotions, reading God's word and praying together that this could then just be what they do for, for that month. Uh, the other thing, too, is, is that uh, while head knowledge is certainly important, there's, I suppose, plenty of it in this devotional book, 
bringing it to the the level of the heart as well, and sincerely praying and desiring that my life would look like this, and uh, that I would live according to this teaching. Uh, a, a devotional book serves that purpose well. So you have then throughout this uh, chapters, so to speak. Um, it, it's a thirty day devotional, but it's divided over what seven kind of topical. Um, issues. Uh, and the first is the, the, the history of marriage. Take us through what, um, just briefly, what you're trying to convey and get uh, the couple to be uh, thinking about and praying that God would work in their lives through going through the history of marriage. I think the most important thing for couples to realize about marriage is that it's not a human thing. Uh, while uh, I suppose we're, we're familiar with hearing that sort of language as the world attempts to redefine marriage, that marriage is, is God's institution, that's mm. a point that, that needs to be heard again and again. But more than it just being God's institution, that the office of husband is God's office and not a merely human one. Uh, that's the the main point getting into the history of marriage is that Christ is the ultimate bridegroom and the church is the ultimate bride. And this is the realest, truest marriage is Christ and the church. And human marriage participates in it or is a shadow of it, uh, but is not ultimately the reality. Uh, we say in our uh, marriage vows, till death us do part, and then it's it's over. But the reality of marriage in Christ and the church never passes away. Uh, death doesn't stop it. Uh, Christ has risen from the dead never to die again and has granted that eternal life to us as members of his bride, the church. Uh, we also have the Apostle Paul's comments on God's institution of marriage in Genesis chapter 2. Uh, this is a great mystery, he says, concerning man leaving his father and mother and holding fast to his wife and the two becoming one flesh. He says, this, this is a great mystery, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So even at the outset of what we consider the institution of marriage between Adam and Eve, it already was this eternal institution having to do with Christ and the church, and not in the end, on the last day, with human beings. So that's the, the main point in the first section of the devotional, is that marriage is about Christ and the church, and if we want to see what a husband should be like or a wife should be like, then we're going to look at that real, true marriage of Christ and the church and find in it all the instruction we could possibly want concerning how we live in our earthly marriages. So it sounds like you're drawing the picture first before you start drawing out the implications of that in the following uh, uh, ch chapter headings. Yeah, you could put it that way. Uh, I, I would say that uh, that the human marriage is the picture, and that Christ and the church is the reality. So setting forth the the real thing, and then getting into our shadows and copies of it is the the approach. Yeah, uh, yeah. I didn't mean it theologically. I just meant giving them kind of like the map before the getting the lay of the land uh, before actually setting out on the journey. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, laying the full picture in front of people and then drawing from it the implications for earthly marriages. Yeah. Okay, so um, I'm intrigued on day four, you have a heading on divine service as, as part of the history of marriage. Uh, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, uh, the divine service is where Christ and his church interact. There's Wonderful language in Ezekiel, I believe it's chapter 16, where the Lord speaks of the whole history of himself with his bride, the church, uh, at least from, from the Old Testament up until till that point. And he, he talks about you know, finding her, and you know, she's wallowing in her blood, and she, he, he cleans her up and takes her to himself, and then he washes her and feeds her and clothes her and adorns her with all these rich ornaments and the the washing and the the feeding and speaking tenderly to her 
that all still continues to this day in the divine service with uh, the gospel and the sacraments. And that is where Christ and the church uh, interact, as I said. And for husband and wife attending that divine service together and partaking of the real true marriage, uh, that more than anything informs uh, earthly marriage. So in other words, it it kind of seems like uh, we are submitting ourselves, particularly men, to be husbanded and have a head to learn how to be a husband and be a head. And in a similar way, um, our our spouses or our wives are are learning that from the truest reality of being husbanded and having a head to in order to see what that looks like uh, to to uh, measure up the uh, what they see with their eyes in their own husbands. Yeah, yeah. The divine service is the place where you learn that submission is a very good thing. I mean, mm-hmm. Who would who would walk into church and hear Christ say things like "I forgive you all your sins" and not want to say "Amen" to that? <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, submitting oneself to the Word of Christ is the most blessed way to live. And submission, having gotten a bad rap with feminist movement, and, and frankly, going all the way back to uh, uh, the consequence of the fall for for Eve in wanting to have authority over her husband, uh, makes you realize the feminist movement isn't anything really new. Uh, right. But submission having a, a bad rap, uh, the divine service is the corrective for that, where you realize that submitting to Christ is the most blessed thing you could possibly do. You wouldn't want to be an authority when it comes to Christ. That would mean that some of your salvation depended on you. Uh, I'd, I'd rather just submit to Christ. His His word goes. He's done it all. And uh, uh, I'm the, the beneficiary of all that. So in your next chapter, you, uh, or subject heading, you, you take up the theme of headship and uh, the first two devotionals within that theme are about duty, uh, the duties of wives and the duties of husbands. Uh, why, why do you bring up duty with regard to headship? Yeah, duty is, is simply what we've been given to do within certain stations in life. And it's important for us to realize, especially as Christians, that the, the duties— uh, the things you are to do within this, this these offices of, of husband and wife are not things that we simply determine for ourselves, uh, but they are already associated with and connected with the office, and they're connected uh, by Christ. He's the one who gave these duties to husband and to wife. And so if we're going to live in these offices or stations, as Christ has instituted them, then we're going to have a very keen interest in what it is that he's given to each office to do. And for uh, wives, that's to submit uh, to their husbands, and for husbands, it's to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Uh, And so those two chapters for uh, day five, day six, uh, dive into those chief duties of husbands and wives. Is there ever an appropriate place to discuss uniquely what um, the duty or the uh, the office of woman versus wife or man versus husband, um, or does the Bible keep them always, always together? And uh, I mean, here I'm thinking of, uh, you know, some like modern commentators like Aaron Wren uh, are constantly complaining about how, um, how the church only talks about masculinity in in relationship to to their wife instead of what a man is for kind of generally even even before marriage and uh you know perhaps after his his spouse has already gone on to glory it is is there anything like that uh you know within your discussion of duties or is it oh is it simply just in relationship to, to, to what they owe um, the counterpart? In this book, it focuses 
particularly on the duties of husbands and wives within marriage. Uh, I would say that in the Bible you can certainly see pictures of what a man should be or what a woman should be, but in terms of talking about duties, it really is all within the family. Uh, and this makes sense that, that God gives us our duties within the three estates. Uh, that, that was a great insight uh, with the, the family, the church, and the civil realm. This, this is how God talks about our duties. It's how you see it in the, the table of duties, for example, in the small catechism. It's structured according to those estates. Uh, while, while I understand the desire to talk about masculinity or femininity, uh, as what what a man is and what a woman is seems to be under attack or is under attack in yeah. in our day uh talking about them apart from the three estates i think will end up being dangerous uh because god hasn't given us that language for talking about it he's mm -hmm. given us the language to talk about man and woman within the context of the the realm of family and to try to discuss it on terms not given to us, I think it's just going to end up with man defining man how he wants or man defining woman how he wants. And you might have some uh, neoconservative sorts of views that come close to getting things decently right. But divorcing that conversation from marriage and family, I see as, as frankly just dangerous. Uh, I teach... Uh, full-time at, at Mountain Hope Lutheran School, uh, junior high and, and high school students. And this question actually came up recently uh, as far as how they're to, to act toward one another as young men and, and young women. And I pointed them to the duties of husbands and wives and said, you know, while you, you aren't married to each other and while a woman ultimately you know, doesn't owe submission to every man but to her husband alone, Nevertheless, it is good practice at this point uh, to begin taking up these duties that you're going to be exercising within marriage. Just, just think of a, a perhaps a, a everyday example. If uh, if a man uh, doesn't hold the door for any woman ever, is he suddenly going to do it with his wife? No, probably not. Uh, mm -hmm. But if he's practicing regularly, uh, treating the woman as the, the weaker vessel, not that she can't open the door herself, but that she shouldn't have to, and he just gets in the habit of holding the door for women, well, guess what? It's going to be second nature when he, he and his wife are standing in front of a door, and the question is who's going to open it. Right? So practicing uh, treating the opposite sex the way you would be doing your duties within marriage is good practice for young people, uh, good practice even when you are married. If a woman, for example, is precocious and brash with, with men, just generally speaking, she isn't suddenly going to be meek and humble and submissive with her own husband. Uh, there are certain attitudes and mindsets that we can simply be practicing all the time and with everybody uh, that will help us within marriage to do our duties well. So, so the primarily at the primary place of uh, relationship between man and woman, then as family, how does that uh, how does how does that kind of fill out in the other estates and those duties? Well, as far as uh, uh, how the duties of husband and wife relate to, say, the church or the civil realm. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Well, within the church, we've got, uh, of course. Uh, the, the ultimate reality of marriage in Christ and the church. Uh, but then with uh, pastors and hearers, you get a similar sort of uh, uh, dynamic. Um, with uh, uh, rulers and uh, citizens, uh, again, a similar sort of dynamic. Uh, now, we can't just take the duties assigned to husbands and wives and, and transfer them to these other estates. Uh, but that structure of authority in each of them uh, does make them bear some resemblance one to another. And the ideas of, of headship and submission uh, do carry over in various ways. So you wrap up that uh, theme of headship with headship disrupted. Um, what do you mean by that? Yeah, this is uh, looking back at 
Uh, again, the history of marriage and back at Genesis chapter 3 in particular, and what happened as a result of the fall and how that continues to manifest itself today uh, for uh, the woman, like the consequence of her sin is your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Uh, and the desire for your husband is uh, not a, a lovey-dovey, oh dear, sort of uh, uh, desire for your husband, but rather you're, you're going to want to be your husband, to, to wear the pants, to use a modern phrase. Mm. Uh, and, and looking at you know, how that works within marriage, then the, on, on Adam's part, uh, you know, part of his sin was that he listened to his wife when he was supposed to be the one uh, doing the talking. He, he stood there while Satan accosted Eve and didn't do anything, uh, didn't even stick a word in there uh, to correct. He just watched it happen. Uh, it says she gave some to her husband who was with her, and, and he ate. Uh, he listened to her instead. And that has marked fallen human marriage now, where you've got uh, women who have it sort of ingrained in them from the fall. Uh, why would I entrust myself to you? You just stood there while the devil dealt with me, and look how it turned out. Uh, mm. What kind of head are you? And on the husband's part, uh, human marriage is, is marred from that same event of him just standing there and not doing his duty and uh, shirking and passing it off onto his wife. And we continue to see that all the time in marriage today, uh, where uh, women are putting themselves forward over their husbands and husbands uh, just let it happen and then grudgingly refer to her as, you know, the ball and chain you know, behind her back. Uh, so those those same things that we saw at the fall uh, continue to uh, mark our, our corrupt image of marriage to this day. Mm -hmm. What role does fault finding versus taking responsibility play in your discussion of headship disrupted and then reconciliation? Yeah, the reconciliation section follows that, and I would place it as you know, the key practice within marriage if, if your marriage is going to be successful. Um, I suppose going to church together is the, the big one, but if you can separate going to church together from reconciling with each other at home, uh, that, that is quite the uh, uh, contradiction and, and paradox. Uh, we see in Genesis chapter 3 that the first thing Adam and Eve want to do is point fingers when confronted by the Lord. Uh, you know, she points at the serpent. He saying, you know, the woman whom you gave to be with me, <laughs> she gave me of the fruit and I ate. Uh, this is our natural tendency when it comes to sin is to try to justify ourselves is what it comes down to. Uh, we, we want to defend ourselves against any charge. And this comes within marriage as well. And it does come down to that desire for self-justification, uh, which again is why the divine service is, is the cure for this, uh, where we hear that Christ is the one who has justified us and we can't justify ourselves. And here is the free forgiveness of sins in his gospel and in the sacrament of his body and blood. Uh, that takes away that desire for self-justification, or at least shoves the old Adam back down to the baptismal font. Uh, but that uh, desire for self-justification uh, can only be put down uh, by the gospel of Christ. And that gospel is also what teaches us to reconcile. Uh, when we have the practice of confession and absolution within the divine service, uh, taking that language on our lips of, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities, uh, when we teach our lips to say that to our Lord, it becomes much, much easier to say it to one another within the context of marriage. And then when we hear our Lord's gracious response, Sunday in and Sunday out, I forgive you all your sins, that again gives us the language to use with one another as there's strife and fighting within marriage. So what role does penance then play? You know, day 13 in your um devotional here is focused on penance. And, um, you know, as most Lutherans, 
we hear that word and kind of recoil. Um, what's your take on that, and why does it have a day devoted to it? Yeah, well, if you don't, if you don't mind, I'll I'll lead up to it with uh, sort of laying the groundwork of reconciliation, and then it'll make sense why penance doesn't make sense. Uh, as far as uh, going about the process of reconciliation, uh, I laid out in uh, uh, the devotion uh, just a, a sample fight that uh, a husband and a wife might have, something totally insignificant, but something people could probably relate to, the, the sorts of situations where you both get irritated because of outside causes and then take it out on each other. So on day nine, I, I lay out a scenario and then in subsequent days go through the process of reconciling. Uh, so the, the first thing is uh, the confession of sin. Uh, so realizing you know, I'm the worst sinner. Uh, Jesus says, why do uh, you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye. To realize when Jesus says you, he's, he's talking about me. He's pointing his finger at me that I have the worst sin. And uh, approaching reconciliation humbly in that way and acknowledging that I, I am the sinner here uh, is that that humility lays the groundwork for proper reconciliation. Um uh, Next, realizing that, that the one who is right does not win the fight, but the one who confesses first. Uh, that Jesus didn't press his right against us, even though he could have. The only person in the history of ever who would be justified in pressing his right decides he'd rather set his right to justice aside and be at peace with us. So recognizing that's our, our Lord's attitude toward us and taking that same attitude toward each other, that I'm not seeking to be right, I'm seeking to be at peace. Uh, as far as the actual confession of sins, confessing specifically, not just throwing up your hands and saying, you know what, fine, I'm sorry, but actually humbly saying, I'm sorry, I fill in the blank with the thing you actually did. And then stopping there, no but afterwards, no seeking to explain it or uh, make it seem like it was in some way the right thing to do. No, all sin is perhaps understandable on a human level. <laughs> we don't need to make our sin understandable. We need to confess it and then hear the forgiveness of sins. Uh, and it's that forgiveness uh, that I get into in the next day, day 11, uh, that when someone confesses to you, you simply say, I forgive you. You pronounce that absolution. There, there's nothing that comes in between. We see this even with uh, Nathan the prophet confronting David. As soon as David is cut to the heart and confesses, I have sinned against the Lord, Nathan immediately says, the Lord has caused your sin to pass away from you. You will not die. And then he, he names the consequence uh, from the Lord, uh, which is not something that husbands and wives do as far as naming consequences for each other. Uh, but there we see the significance of confession, absolution, nothing in between. And then once that's spoken, we're, we're done. That, that matter is, is settled. And that sin is not going to be used as ammunition in some future argument. It's not going to be used as a topic of conversation when we have people over for dinner later. Uh, we've we've dropped it, and if there's any more that needs to be discussed, it's going to be just between husband and wife as Christians, uh, and that is a, a very opportune time uh, to talk about dealing with sin and preventing it in the future. Uh, you remember Zacchaeus when the Lord uh, calls him down from the tree and says, "I'm coming to your house today." Zacchaeus, in his joy declares that the half of his goods he gives to the poor, and if he's wronged anyone anything, he'll restore it fourfold. And uh, we see the, the fruit of having your sins forgiven, that you want to make up for it, not in the sense that you need to work it off, but just in your joy at the forgiveness of sins, realizing I have done harm here, and I would like to undo it as much as it lies in my power to do so. Uh, so husband and wife can can talk about that sort of thing or simply take it upon themselves to try to, to remedy a situation as much as can be done. Uh, and then prevention of sin is also something we're interested in. 
if a husband and wife are constantly fighting about the same topic, then after they've reconciled with one another and cooled down and there's peace and the new man has the upper hand, then sitting down and talking as Christians, how can we prevent this sort of fight in the future? And uh, that prevention has its place in the Christian life because we, uh, uh, well, what are we saying? Grant, O Lord, to keep us this day without sin. Uh, we, we want to be free from sin. And as much as husband and wife can help each other, uh, uh, we, we seek to do it. And then we get to, to day 13 with penance. Uh, and that has no place in this, this whole process of reconciliation. But it's something that by nature, by fallen nature, we're constantly trying to insert into that process of reconciliation, saying, you know, you know what, fine, I forgive you. Just just do the thing that I asked you to. And uh, then turning a person back to his own works and uh, making up for his sin or working it off. Uh, that concept of the doghouse uh, is tied with this idea of penance, of trying to, to work off your sin. Uh, the, the doghouse being that, that expression of of one spouse or another, usually the wife against the husband, uh, remaining bitter and holding a grudge and taking more the approach that time heals all wounds rather than uh, the blood of Christ forgives all sins and continuing to hold something against husband or wife uh, for the rest of the day or for several days and refusing to let it go, acting bitterly toward one another as if the other person has to do something to get back into your good graces. Uh, applying this to the reality of Christ and the church, that's, that's not how Jesus works. That's not how he deals with us. He doesn't stick us in the doghouse and say, you know what, I'm going to be angry with you for a little while still, so you better do everything you can to get back on my good side. No, he simply pronounces the absolution and it's over. Uh, the sin's forgiven, it's done. Uh, he doesn't remain angry with us. He doesn't hold it against us. Uh, and therefore, in our earthly human marriages, uh, we must live the same way. Uh, marriage is Christ's institution, not ours. So we have to live in it according to how he lives in it with his church. And penance, the, the working off of sin, has no place with him, so it has no place with us either. So when you brought up Zacchaeus, uh, what I hear is, it sounds like you're saying uh, the 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 works that are done after forgiveness are a fruit of that, something that um, kind of bubbles up because of the forgiveness bestowed, both in Christ and by the one sinned against. And there's a desire there within the offender to make things right. Uh, to do the best he can to restore and repair what has gone wrong. Um, and, and, and it sounds like you're saying the exactment of penance uh, short circuits that and, and doesn't actually allow for kind of flourishing within, within the family. And so you're not saying don't try to restore and, uh, and, and repair, uh, but rather don't exact it as a penalty. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it, that the the good works that flow from it should be natural, not exacted. Jesus didn't tell Zacchaeus, now, what are you going to do to make up for all of these horrible things that you've done in the past? And Zacchaeus racked his brain and tortured his conscience and came up with this idea of giving half of his goods to the poor or something like that. Uh, rather, it just it just happened. We see the same thing with those who are coming to John the Baptist to be baptized by him. This is in what, Luke chapter 3, mm -hmm. where tax collectors and soldiers are, are coming and being baptized, and they're repenting of their sins. Uh, they're being pointed to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, they're receiving uh, baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And out of that good, clean conscience that they've received for the sake of Christ, they ask the question, what should we do? And John gives them instruction. 
about not collecting more than uh, they have to, uh, not using you know force and and violence to get things out of people as soldiers, and being content with your wages and so forth. Uh, those are the uh, the fruits, hmm. and just like the people in that situation asked, you know, what uh, uh, what what should we do? Uh, it's it's perfectly fine uh, to to think about it. You know, what what could I do to mm-hmm. uh, try to make up for this? Uh, that's not a mm-hmm. bad question to ask. Uh, it's it's the motive of the heart that it comes down to. Am I asking this question? What should I do? Because I think I still need to work off this sin and appease the anger of my spouse. Uh, or is it because in the joy of the forgiveness of sins, knowing that my spouse holds nothing against me, I would like to make this sin disappear as much as possible, not only before the judgment seat of Christ, which he has taken care of and my spouse has reminded me of, uh, but also here on earth, <laughs> what can I do to obliterate this sin and make it like it never happened as much as lies in my power? At the same time, understanding that there are certain things we we can't undo, uh, especially within marriage, where so many of the sins are sins of words, that we we say things that hurt each other. Uh, you don't sit down and say, "I'm going to say ten nice things because of the ten mean things I said earlier," or something like that. That just seems forced. Uh, there's a whole lot that simply needs to be overlooked, and we must realize that. Christ alone is the one who can perfectly make sin go away. Uh, We don't have that power on earth. So even as we attempt to mitigate the consequences of our sins, uh, we recognize that we aren't going to be able to do it perfectly. And this just casts us back onto Christ and prevents us from trusting in ourselves, which is actually very good for us within marriage. So it seems like that's what your kind of next chapter is about or your next heading is kind of in detail then uh assuming we're asking the question okay so then what shall i do here's in detail how again these things play out in terms of how to love your wife and then how to subordinate yourself to your husband is that right yeah that's correct and i go into several uh, practical things as far as enumerating the duties of of husbands and wives uh, the the very next day, day 14, lays the groundwork for all of that, uh, provoke one another. Uh, the idea that uh, we uh, don't need to be worrying about what the other person's duty is. We need to be worrying about our own. Uh, and this goes for so many things in life. Right? The, the Pharisee constantly has the eye on whether the other person is doing his duty or not. And by by so doing, neglects his own. Uh, so see to your own duty, and uh, the rest will follow. Uh, there's a, a a great set of sermons by John Chrysostom, a uh, uh, pastor from what, the, the fourth century, who uh, or f- a fifth? Yeah, I'm drawing a blank. Yeah, fifth or sixth. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. He had he had preached through the book of Ephesians and has some wonderful sermons on marriage and parenting. And here's what he had to say about uh, what he knew to be the tendency of man to want to pay attention to whether the other person's doing the duty and not looking at myself. Uh, He says, Do you desire your wife to listen to you as the church to Christ? You keep providing for her as Christ for the church. Uh, And then later in the sermon, What then, he says, if my wife doesn't revere me? You love Continue to fulfill your own duty. For even if the things due from others do not follow, it is necessary that our duties do follow. In any case, let the wife, even if she is not loved, nevertheless show reverence, in order that there be nothing lacking in her. Also the husband, should the wife not show reverence, let him love anyway, in order that he lack nothing, for each one has received his own duty. Uh, mm-hmm. that's, that's probably in a single paragraph, some of the best marriage advice I could possibly <laughs> give. Uh, and that's just quoting from, uh, uh, a, a celibate monk <laughs> from the uh, fifth <laughs> century. <laughs> so the next thematic kind of chapter heading is the pitfalls, the things that, uh, are perhaps, uh, 
for lack of a better way of saying it, not sins in and of themselves, but our occasions to sin. Um, uh, and maybe that's not the right way to say it, but the that kind of the 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 covetous desire there, the concupiscent um, uh, activity that that leads us into these uh, these paths and our you know pits for our own destruction. Um, take us through some of the the, the highlights of what. Um, marriages should be on guard against and how the duties then of husband and wife uh, are well suited to um, go against these these pitfalls yeah uh, so there are there are common areas within marriage where husband and wife are going to find it easy to sin uh, and stir up strife uh, among themselves and drive wedges uh, between them uh, the first one that I take up is is mammon, uh, money and possessions, the earthly stuff. Uh, and the, the reason that it's an, an area of conflict is, uh, first of all, that the sinful flesh is selfish. So when you know, he goes out and spends a bunch of money on uh, this new gizmo, or she goes out and spends a bunch of money on you know, you know, what, clothes or a purse or something, uh, and then the other one gets word. Uh, there's there's upset, uh, uh, especially when when money seems to be tight. And that's the, the second reason why mammon is uh, often a, a pitfall within marriage. Not only is the sinful sinful flesh selfish, but it's also secure when it has mammon. So when it sees the other person spending it, the sinful flesh thinks it has two reasons to be angry. Uh, first of all, I wanted to spend that money. And and now there's there's less of it for me to spend because I only feel secure when we have money and we can't both be spending it. And then this becomes a, a source of uh, conflict within marriage. Uh, of course, the uh, 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 cure for this is, is the gospel. Uh, that because Christ has reconciled us to our Father in heaven... Uh, then, like we confess in the explanation of the first article of the Creed, he gives us all these things only out of fatherly divine goodness and mercy without any merit or worthiness in me. Uh, that our Father in heaven takes care of us for the sake of Christ because he's, he's no longer angry with us or holding our sins against us. Instead, he wants to be at peace with us and make sure we're taken care of. Uh, so, uh, against the sinful flesh, uh, that uh, trusts mammon, uh, God says, you know, here, here am I. I. I will be your God. I will take care of everything. Uh, my, my dear son has made us one with each other, and we are at peace, and I desire your good and want to take care of you. And when we realize we have such a father in heaven, then concern about money vanishes. Uh, and when we realize just how insignificant mammon really is to life, uh, which the, the new creation in Christ does realize, uh, that helps us put down the selfishness of the flesh that looks to mammon for all its good. Uh, would I have uh, pleasure in life? Then let me have it in the gospel of Christ and not in this, this filthy mammon. Uh, or you know, do I want joy and, and happiness? Well, buying the latest, greatest version of this, that, or the other thing isn't going to give it to me in the end. Uh, it's, that's going to become stale. Uh, mammon is going to fail. Uh, give me, give me Jesus. He will, he will not fail. Uh, and these are the the ways in which the the Christian husband and wife fight against the flesh in that that realm of mammon. That makes sense. Uh, and so often it it seems as though, um, you know, when well we perceive that you know the fix for something is to get more of it. Uh, and perhaps that's not always the case. Um, perhaps it is uh, diminishing its power over us by having less of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's a, a condition called called dropsy that we hear about in the New Testament, uh, and the the early church fathers used that as an example of our desires for things. And with with dropsy, uh, the body misuses water 
and stores it in the arms and legs and hands and feet and torso and face, and you just become bloated with water. But because your body's misusing it, you're always thirsty for more and want to be taking in more and more and more uh, because that's what your body is telling you it needs. But then it just misuses it and leaves you even more thirsty than you were. And one of the ancient cures for it is stop drinking water. Just stop for a while. And uh, that, uh, uh, to this day, is one of the, the means by which uh, uh, that con- condition is handled. Uh, but that relates spiritually pretty much one for one with many things. Uh, mammon or vainglory. We always want more and more and more of it, and yet we're never satisfied by it. And the, the cure is just stop. Stop getting more. Stop uh, seeking it out. Uh, you know, starve it out. <laughs> and, and that actually does work. It's kind of like scratching the itch. You think it's going to mm, go away, yeah. but it just makes it worse. Yeah, okay, yeah that's so, another great image for it. What, um, so, uh, Pleonexia. What, mm, is, yeah. what is that all about? As I titled a, a chapter after this this Greek word, pleonexia, uh, it comes from pleon, which is, is more, and exia, which is related to the Greek verb uh, to have. So pleonexia means to have more or to, to want to have more. Uh, it's a word that comes up in a couple of places in the New Testament. I quote Colossians 3 verse 5, where Paul writes, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and pleonexia, which is uh, translated covetousness in the ESV, uh, pleonexia, covetousness, which is idolatry. And uh, I think it was a, a lecture, uh, an interview with uh, John Kleinig, where he got into the exposition of that verse and noted that Paul is talking about uh, the sexual passion here, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and then he doesn't just throw in covetousness at the end as if he's suddenly turning to uh, what we think of when we think of covetousness, desire for earthly wealth or possessions, uh, but rather he's relating covetousness or having more to uh, the sexual realm and then calls it idolatry. Uh, and so that, that chapter on pleonexia uh, focuses on uh, well, six, Sixth Commandment matters, or at least some of them. Other, other days deal with other aspects of the Sixth Commandment. Uh, but here the desire for, for more or better uh, in terms of uh, physical attraction or sexual relations uh, within marriage. Uh, so uh, uh, going after that in that chapter and uh, concludes with an excerpt from a sermon that Luther gave concerning marriage. Uh, from that book, uh, What is Marriage Really?, which is uh, a couple of, of sermons or treatises that, that Luther had written on marriage. And uh, here's what he had to say. Uh, Realize that after you are married, the devil will tempt you with adventurous curiosity and forbidden lust. You will not perfectly love your wife. As a result, from time to time, other thoughts will enter your mind, suggesting that another woman is prettier and lovelier than your wife. In the same way, also, your wife will not perfectly love you. Consequently, some other man may turn her head. Even though you may be chaste, you nonetheless will feel such temptations in your heart, stirred up by your flesh and inspired by the devil, especially if you want to be a Christian. This is why you here must once more be armed with God's word. It tells you, this is your flesh and your bone given and ordained to you from God. By this word she is adorned in sheer purple and pieces of gold and precious stones above all other women on earth. You will not be able to choose or select a better one. In this way, you can fend off adventurous curiosity and resist the devil so that no other woman becomes lovelier or more desirable than your wife, even if she is homely, obstinate, odd, and unfriendly. Therefore, let everyone see to it that he may abide by God's word and look at his spouse according to it. According to the word of God, your spouse is clad in the most beautiful jewels put on by God. If you look at your marriage like this and regard it as so precious and priceless, nobody else's wife will please you as much as your own wife for the word will not allow it. Even if you think that some other woman's words or gestures are most kind and beautiful, she is nonetheless, in comparison to your wife, totally ugly in your eyes, for in her you do not find the adornment, which is God's word. 
Yet your wife is the prettiest and loveliest for you, because she is the one whom God himself has adorned with his dear word. Uh, Luther's <laughs> addressing of that topic, I, I have never read anything that puts it better than that. Uh, you desire your wife because she's adorned with God's word. Uh, doesn't matter how she looks, how she acts, she is the most beautiful for you, uh, because she's the one God gave, and God did not give the others. Uh, and that leads to great contentment, which is the the way of combating uh, the desire for more. Now, that's really helpful. I mean, it, it in what you just quoted from Luther really highlights some of the things you've already been talking about, which is you can only, as a husband, you can only learn to be ahead by uh, by submitting uh, to your own head, uh, and this is the word of God. And and similarly, a wife continues to learn how to submit by submitting to that word, that same word, um, uh, in, in carrying out the duties that each have been called to. So that's that's really brilliant. Um, throughout the pitfalls, you 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 have brought up things kind of external, but that work inwardly. Uh, then you've got parents and children. Um, how do how does that relationship then play out in terms of these are external things, but they but they but they have an, an internal uh, kind of source, right? Now with with parents, uh, uh, some of the strife that I often hear of within marriage has to do with with in laws and and fighting with uh, the spouse's parents or being at strife or just not, not getting along. Uh, we don't have that problem uh, in our family. I love my in-laws. <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> I count myself and, very and my fortunate too. Loves, my loves my hers. parents are great. <laughs> uh, uh, still, uh, even, even when there is, uh, you know, we believe the same thing. We're at peace with each other. Our families get along great. The the simple fact is that my wife and I came from different homes. We had different ways of of doing things. I remember when we were when my wife and I were putting together our wedding registry. We've got the little scanner thing and are going around some store and you know putting things on the on the list. And you know, she's scanning uh, Tupperware and and Pyrex containers and. I'm thinking, what on earth do we need these for? You know, when you know when I was growing up, you, know, you just stuck it in a bowl and put a plate over the top and stuck it in the fridge. You know, what, what do you need all these separate things for? We already have plates. Uh, and uh, you know, it, it was uh, one of those things that to this day you know, sticks with me and makes me realize that there, there's more than one right way to to have a home and to mm -hmm. conduct things within the home. Uh, or even even still, uh, when uh, my wife's folks come out to visit, you know, she she really loves uh, squash and and pumpkin pie, and and I just don't. It wasn't something I grew up with, and she doesn't make it too often. But when her folks are around, then there's all kinds of squash and sweet potatoes and pumpkin pie and such, and uh, you just learn to say, you know, uh, people like this. There's nothing wrong with it. I I just don't. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> this doesn't need to be a, a point of contention. Uh, we can feel threatened about, you know, our, our very existence or way of life just because someone else does it differently. And <laughs> especially within the realm of, uh, in-laws and the fact that two different families have come together in, uh, my wife and me, uh, that it, it's, it's okay if, if there's variety uh, and different ways of doing things. Uh, so not letting that that little stuff that we would rightly characterize as uh, marital adiaphora, uh, le not letting it become a source of contention within marriage. Uh, the more pernicious sin, I suppose, and I mean, what I was talking about isn't a sin, it just could lead to it if, if handled wrongly. Uh, but one, one really deep sin uh, that comes in with the, the realm of, of parents or in-laws is siding with your parents over your spouse. And I've, I've seen that happen in, in marriage before. And uh, uh, thanks be to God, that's, that's not uh, something I've, I've personally had to deal with. Uh, but I've seen enough instances of it uh, elsewhere that it, it wrecks havoc 
on marriages uh, when uh, parents and spouse are being pitted against each other. There's already enough opportunity for conflict over things like Pyrex containers and butternut squash. You don't need to be introducing real actual problems here <laughs> when there's already uh, potential for conflict. And and yet uh, that that does regularly happen within marriage, uh, particularly from from what I've observed, uh, uh, the wife in relation to her parents and her husband uh, 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 playing both sides or pitting the two against each other in some way. Mm. Um, uh, the I mean, the the cure for this sort of thing is you know, first of all realizing that the marital relationship takes precedence over uh uh the the parental one uh you are you are the offspring of your parents but you are one flesh with your spouse uh you you are in a a relationship with your parents uh but there's a sense in which you aren't even in a relationship with uh your your spouse you are one we're not talking about separate and uh uh, different entities being related to each other. We're, we're talking about them being one flesh. Uh, and that relationship has to take precedence. Uh, this doesn't mean that uh, there needs to be strife, that uh, husband and wife need to be uh, upholding one another and, and seeking reasons to you know throw something in their parents' faces. Uh, but when there is conflict, we uh, always uh, side uh, with our spouse. Uh, and we have to keep in mind, too, uh, that the, our relationship to our parents doesn't disappear within marriage. Uh, mm-hmm. And without our parents, we wouldn't exist. Uh, the fourth commandment still holds. And uh, rather than looking at in-laws as a, a source of, of strife, uh, seeking instead to, to seek how I've benefited from having someone else to call dad and someone else to call mom... Uh, it really is uh, an opportunity of, of seeing a great blessing that God has given us. If we're, according to the fourth commandment, and again, according to the adornment of the word, supposed to look at our parents and call them a great blessing from God, then I am twice blessed in that I have become one with my wife, and she has father and mother as well. And uh, now I'm a, a twofold beneficiary of the fourth commandment. <laughs> and looking at... Uh, Parents in that way uh, can be a great uh, blessing for marriage. The new man in having that outlook um, isn't going to seek strife, but is instead uh, going to, to seek to, to understand how God has blessed him in this. Yeah, that there is a sense in which uh, not only their very existence, but even their personality and how they think about things is wrapped up in, in their own home life. And... Um, and as you said, you're a beneficiary of that. So, uh, finding reasons to perhaps rejoice instead of chafe, uh, is, is the way forward. Um, so kind of wrapping up, you, you have uh, a section on miscellany, uh, and then the consummation. So kind of take us just a little bit, uh, what miscellaneous things did you want to cover in that? And then why did you uh, end with the consummation? Yes. In the, the miscellany section, uh, there were a few things that I wanted to to get through that didn't necessarily categorize exactly in some other way. Uh, on day 26, uh, I titled that uh, inward and outward, that while we have duty toward each other as husband and wife, uh, God has has brought us together in such a way that we can show love uh, in a way that is is not just twofold what we could individually, but tenfold or a hundredfold. Uh, you know, you've, you've probably seen this with with certain couples within congregations, where the the husband and wife form this sort of dynamic duo, where it seems like they can do anything and are constantly overflowing in love, not just. Uh, for each other, but uh, turning outward together toward their neighbor and seeking how they can uh, love others and be of service to them. So in that chapter, I uh, address 
that, uh, not just being completely inward focused within marriage, as important as it is to know my duties and seek to do them better, recognizing that God has has made marriage as this uh, wonderful instrument of love uh, within the church. Uh, certainly the first place we see this is within the family with children, uh, the offspring of that marriage. Uh, and comparing husband and wife raising children with a single parent raising children, it's, it's very clear that husband and wife together don't just accomplish twice as much as one person can, but it's, it's uh, a difference between night and day. Uh, and channeling that uh, love for the neighbor, uh, certainly to children and then uh, to the congregation and outside the, the family as well. Uh, and this actually benefits the marriage as well, as we work side by side, uh, loving and, and caring for others. This actually does drive us closer together as husband and wife as well. Uh, so that was that was the purpose of that uh, day's devotion. Uh, I also wanted to go through the marriage rite itself, uh, that exposition of marriage and its purposes as laid out at the beginning of the marriage rite, and then the actual vows themselves and uh, what husband and wife have pledged to one another. Uh, uh, those were were solemn vows that that we took mm. and uh, reflecting on them on you know reading them on at least an annual basis uh, should be a priority for for husbands and wives or i I swore before God and a whole congregation of people that I was going to do these things uh, uh, knowing what they are <laughs> what what is it that I swore I was going to do so solemnly. Uh, before God and his people. Uh, so that, that's just an, an opportunity to reflect on those vows and have uh, a guided tour back through them again. Mm -hmm. uh, day 29, uh, the hyperabounding grace. Uh, that's borrowing language from, from Romans, uh, where, uh, where, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Uh, again, pointing husband and wife to uh, the gospel of Christ toward the conclusion of the devotion uh, that we are going to see within marriage that just just like uh, Joseph's brothers uh, in in their treatment of him, you know, there there was great sin and grievous evil, uh, and yet God brought good out of that. And Joseph even reminds his brothers of that at the end of the book of Genesis. And we see the same thing all the time within marriage, where we've sinned against each other. We should be suffering horrible consequences, uh, and instead we see that God works all things together for good. Not that I would have gone out of my way to sin, as if I were seeking good from sin. Uh, Paul makes that point immediately afterwards in Romans, shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. Uh, that's, that's not the point. Uh, the point is we're going to sin, and... Uh, we we recognize that Christ can bring good even out of that. Uh, and so we, we rejoice that he has not simply given us over to the full consequence of our sin, but within this, this realm of marriage where uh, husband and wife probably sin most is, is within marriage and against one another. Uh, even there we see Christ bringing uh, good out of our sin and we rejoice in his grace. Uh, and then I concluded the devotion with the the marriage supper of the lamb the the consummation it's kind of the final part of the the history of marriage and uh, it's simply looking forward to the last day when we dwell forever face to face with Christ in that full and true reality of marriage where all human marriage is seen as the shadow uh, that that it is uh, an image of the the greater reality and we get to enjoy the the real thing uh, forever and ever uh, with with Christ our bridegroom. Uh, I don't say any of this to disparage earthly marriage. Uh, I keep calling Christ and the church the the real true marriage, which isn't to say that you know we aren't really married to our spouses or something like that, uh, but simply to highlight that this is what we're going for in the end. Uh, my life goal is not ultimately to be married to my wife, which sounds almost blasphemous in a way. Uh, but uh, my goal for life and my wife's 
is to dwell eternally with Christ and to be members of his bride, the church, forever with our bridegroom. Uh, and uh, with that as the mutual goal of husband and wife, we're going to live within earthly marriage in such a way that serves that goal. Uh, that means we're going to go to church together. We're going to reconcile with each other. We're going to try to prevent each other from sinning. We're going to overlook each other's faults, not stir up strife and contention, uh, raise pious children, and uh, live at peace with one another. And all of that serves that ultimate goal of sitting down to the marriage supper of the Lamb and his kingdom, which has no end. Well, this is a wonderful resource, guys. Um, he also includes the some appendices with some quotes from the Church Father, some of the, which he's quoted in this discussion today, uh, and a number of other helpful things like hymns and other resources, prayers that could be included uh, in those nightly devotions. Uh, you can find this resource uh, on Steadfast Lutherans. Uh, it's published by Steadfast Press, and uh, you can either order uh, a hardbound copy or they have uh, a free copy that you can download on PDF. So uh, I will put a link to that in the show notes. But Andrew, thank you for your time. Thank you for putting pen to paper and uh, helping uh, husbands and wives within our church body and hopefully beyond uh, set aside a month to uh, work on their marriages and the duties that God has called to them, uh, them to do within it. So thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me on.